Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm your hostess at the Catholic Association and the podcast, as well as the radio show. And if you are listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to our page at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast, and it'll direct you to all those podcast apps, which all of us use so successfully. We're so good with technology, right? Right, ladies? (laughs) You know, I I think it's worth noting, Gracie, that you're very good with technology. I'm sure Ashley, because she's youthful, is, but I'm horrible at it, and I'm thankful that we've got great technicians here uh, helping (laughs) us walk our way through this great adventure. It's all a mystery, and there's a new mystery every day when it comes to technology. So I'm, I'm, as I said, Gracie Christie, and I'm in Miami. And we have two of our um, wonderful, my wonderful colleagues at the Catholic Association, our legal legal, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer and Ashley McGuire, both of them in our EWTN studios. Welcome, ladies. Hey, it's great to be with you, Gracie and Andrea. Ashley and I are enjoying the be- beautiful view of the nation's capital. What's your view, Gracie? I'm looking at a a wall, and it's covered in those sound panels that look like egg crate uh, stuff. (laughs) Not very attractive, (laughs) but it works. But right beyond beyond that closet is a beautiful uh, ocean scene, right? Yeah. You can see out into the ocean. Gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful here. And the weather's lovely still. I heard it's snowing in D.C. Is that true? (laughs) No, uh, I got an alert that it was supposed to snow this afternoon, but... It's not snowing. It's not snowing. So. Come on. <laughs> this isn't Chicago. So, you know, today uh, on our radio show and podcast, we're talking about something that's near and dear to the hearts of the Catholic Association. It's religious liberty. That's, a, that's the reason we were formed. That's the reason we, our group was formed to defend religious liberty. After This all started after the Obamacare mandate about uh, the contraceptive mandate, as they call it. And uh, our, our group was formed, but we've sort of morphed into other things. And uh, we, we like to keep our eye on religious liberty. It's a very important topic. And today we're going to be talking to uh, uh, vi- the vice president and senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is a religious freedom legal advocacy group that does uh, amazing things. It's been called by the Wall Street Journal, God's ACLU which I think is a great way to, uh, to talk about Beckett. His name is Luke Goodrich, and he represented several religious organizations and individuals in lots of different religious liberty disputes, including, um, let's see, actually, oh, the, of course, the, the big one, Little Sisters of the Poor, that seems to be going on and on. Uh, still, the government is persecuting those poor, wonderful women. Um, and he's also an adjunct professor at the University of Utah, Quinney College of Law. And he is joining us all the way from Utah. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Luke Goodrich. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Luke, you, you just wrote a book. You just published it called, um, I have it right in front of me, the book. Here it is, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. And we wanted to have you on so that uh, we could explore some of the themes that you talk about in your book. We thought that you have a very interesting approach that will resonate uh, with lots of people. Um, And so we wanted to talk to you about it. 
Luke, this is Ashley. Um, Luke and I, we worked together for many years at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, uh, which was founded by a man named Seamus Hassan, who um, wrote sort of a very unique book about religious liberty, The Right to Be Wrong. And um, Luke, reading your book, it, it felt like I was reading sort of an updated uh version of that book in many respects. You know, you, you draw some of the, you talk about some of the same things that Seamus talks about, the the pilgrims, um, but you sort of bring the religious liberty conversation, you know, up to the 2019, and so much has changed since Seamus wrote that book. Um, but the first thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, having worked at the Becca Fund with lawyers, a lot of times lawyers aren't always writers, usually they're not, or it's a very different writing style, let's say that. Um, so, you know, you've done something interesting, which is you're, you know, you've spent your life um, litigating, and then you wrote a book about about the cases you've worked on. So, what was the process of writing a, a book like, and and trying to communicate uh, the legal world to sort of the public today? Yeah. So I wrote Free to Believe after you know, over a decade at the Beckett Fund and working on the front lines of these cases, and. One of the things that motivated me to write it, I attended a gathering of Christian leaders uh, when the Supreme Court was considering the Obergefell case on same-sex marriage, and these were leaders of denominations, leaders of universities, of large social service ministries, uh, and theologians, and I was struck, you know, as I was in that room, number one, there was so much fear around the issue of religious freedom and what was going to happen after the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And then number two, there was just a a lack of of knowledge, a lack of legal knowledge, a lack of uh, theological and biblical knowledge. And I'd been working in this field for a decade, and I just felt like, hey, I might have something to bring here. So one of my joys is trying to take legal concepts and just distill them and, and talk about them in a way that's highly accessible to people who are not lawyers. And so that's what I was trying to do with Free to Believe, is basically speak to uh, Christians and other leaders, and not lawyers, and basically help them understand why does religious freedom matter, uh, how is it under threat in modern American culture, and what can we do practically to preserve it. Luke, this is Andrea, and I'm I'm the lawyer of the group this morning. Um, And I was actually super thankful for your book, Um, as a lawyer to read it because it was bringing a lot of the cases, bringing me up to speed on the different facets of of, uh, conflicts in the courts and in general um, and the different issues that are there. But one thing that I really enjoyed about you and it it made me appreciate your role as good counsel is your ability to speak to your clients and what your clients were struggling through. It wasn't... um, your clients weren't just a name on a case. They were real people that you um, were able to kind of uh, explain the conflicts and the struggles and the courage that they displayed. And that was a, a great reminder for folks, I think, also in the legal profession, that there, there are real lives behind these cases and the implications um, can deal with losing a family business or having your neighbors uh, become aggressive or, or contrarian towards what you're trying to do. So I, I want to say on behalf of the legal profession, I'm very grateful for this book <laughs> as well. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, standing shoulder to shoulder with clients is really the, the joy of this job, you know, whether that's 
the Little Sisters of the Poor or the Green Family of Hobby Lobby or you know, many, many people of faith that most people have never heard of, but they are courageously standing up to the government and saying, we will not bow to your demands. Our conscience will not allow it. And I, I just feel like I've learned so much, even about my own faith, mm-hmm. from my clients who are, who are going through these very significant battles. Luke, out there in the real world where people aren't focusing so much on religious liberty, that's not their job, it's not what they do, uh, people, uh, many, many, many people, even religious people, good Christians or uh, people of other religions maybe aren't, don't even have much of a concept that their religious liberty is being is in danger and is being aggressed against in, in some fashion all around the United States. But uh, you, you talk about in your books that, about people who are aware uh, Christians who who are aware of the religious uh, that the religious freedom is in danger that they typically take uh, three different approaches. Could you tell us about those ap- approaches that people take towards their religious liberty? Yeah, so I've I've had a chance to talk with a lot of Christians about religious freedom over the years, and I I see them you know tending to fall into three different camps. So one I call the pilgrims. Uh, these are Christians who they probably lean conservative politically. And if you ask them why religious freedom matters, they'd say, well, we, it's in our Constitution, and we're a Judeo-Christian nation, and religious freedom is essential to protecting, keeping the door open for the spread of the gospel. So they view it kind of like a, a political and legal issue for protecting us as Christians and making sure Christianity retains a prominent place in American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, a second camp I see it's kind of a reaction against that pilgrim view. I call them the martyrs, and I've encountered Christians who would say, you know, why does religious freedom matter? Well, yeah, why does it matter? And I think this is just a, a political issue. It's a culture war issue. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. We don't really have religious freedom problems here in America. You know, get over your persecution complex. And even if we do have some problems, the Church actually flourishes under persecution. So bring it on, and let's get back to focusing on the core issues of the gospel and and matters of justice. So you have kind of pilgrims on one end, martyrs on the other, and then kind of in between you have what I call the beginners, and these are folks who are just kind of waking up to the issue of religious freedom. They may have questions, uh, or they may be a little bit tired and exhausted by the, the fights between the pilgrims and the martyrs, uh, and they just they just want to know more. And so I've written Free to Believe because I think all three of those views, you know, while they may have some truth to them, they're also lacking in very significant ways, uh, theologically, lacking historically and legally and practically. And so I wanted to offer a different way of thinking about religious freedom that's rooted in Scripture and in the Church's teaching, uh, and also is informed by actual knowledge about the legal issues confronting us today. Luke, you um, sort of towards the beginning of the book, you take on some of the classic misperceptions about religion and religious liberty. And it, my sense is that, you know, you, you're saying sort of the first step in sort of a new way forward is is learning to identify those. Um, and, you know, one that I think is so common, a, a, a misperception or a misunderstanding about the role of religion in society is as you put it, you say uh, religious liberty reduces social conflict. And I think most Americans, especially with how hot the culture wars are right now, think the exact opposite. They think that religion is the primary source of social conflict. Can you flesh that out a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, so I, I think 
we've experienced a major cultural shift over the last couple decades where traditional Christian beliefs about things like absolute truth and life and marriage, you know, they, they were they weren't uniformly accepted in the past, but they weren't all that controversial. Uh, but nowadays, those traditional beliefs about truth and life and marriage are viewed in many quarters as a threat to modern culture. And so we are more divided as a society than we ever were uh, on those issues, and that is generating renewed religious freedom conflicts. So you could look at religious freedom or religion and say that's a source of conflict, but the conflict is already there. Our society is deeply divided over these issues, and the question is, what is the government's role in that? Uh, and there are basically two options. One, the government could pick one side of these debates over life and over marriage and sexuality and crush everyone who disagrees, uh, or the government can try to find a way to respect uh, the deeply held beliefs of both sides. And that's what religious freedom enables, is for the government to say, look, you may have a disagreement. You may want to live differently. And this is what we had with the Quakers at the time of the founding when they refused to take up arms in the colonial militia. And they suffered for a while, but eventually our government came around and said, look, we should not force you to violate your deeply held convictions. And so religion, basically, religious freedom allows these competing sides to live together in relative peace because the government respects the dignity of both sides. Luke, this is Andrea. I am... Um... I liked your book for a range of reasons, but one of the things that I thought was helpful is it, it's, I've been calling it a primer. It's a primer for all of us to understand um, how to explain religious freedom to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members. And, and you start off by saying we need to kind of clarify some misconceptions. Advocates of religious freedom aren't pushing for, um, like you said before, doing whatever you want and, and pointing to your religion as justification. But instead, you offer a simple definition in your book. And, and perhaps you can restate again, what is uh, the definition that we should all be working off of when we're, when we're advocating for religious freedom in America? Yeah, I offer a simple definition. It's just that religious freedom is the government leaves religion as untouched by government power as possible. So it's not restricting religion, it's not promoting religion, it's trying to be hands-off with religion. And a lot of people think of religious freedom as some sort of license to do whatever you want, uh, but that's not what religious freedom is at all. And the vast majority of religious freedom conflicts in our country today, they're not conflicts where the government is you know, out to get religious people and intentionally trying to suppress them. Uh, and they're also not conflicts where religious people are just out there wreaking havoc on society. Rather, they're, you know, we just have a government that regulates a lot of different areas of human life, and we have a lot of different religious beliefs out there, so they inevitably come in conflict. And religious freedom means the government tries as much as possible to limit that conflict and leave people as free as possible to engage in their own religious practices. That's a great definition. It's very helpful because it, it's a definition of pluralism, of, sort of that wonderful freedom that people, when they think of the United States, they think of a place where people can be individuals and lead lives that don't necessarily have to look like their neighbors, that they can live, live lives that are true to their own consciences, that same, that same individuality that, uh, promote, that you know, motivates people who 
like secularists to 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 mistakes is is a wonderful foundational principle of the United States, in my opinion. You know, Luke, can I bring you back to the question I asked uh, before about the three those the three ways that um, that you categorize most Christian most believe most most people's beliefs of, of religious liberty, and you ended by saying that you had. Uh, another way of thinking about it. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so I, I think the, the pilgrims, the martyrs, and the beginners, the, the common uh, problem in those few views is that they treat religious freedom primarily as a legal or a political issue, uh, when in reality religious freedom is much deeper than that. It's a theological, a biblical, and a philosophical issue. Uh, so I encourage readers to go back to uh, to Scripture and to the teaching of the Church in Dignitatis Humanae, and realize that religious freedom is not just a political tool or a culture war issue, it's actually a basic issue of biblical justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. And uh, what I mean by that, I go back to Genesis 1, where God creates human beings in His image, and uh, being created in the Imago Dei means a lot of things, but one thing it means is we have a capacity for a relationship with God, a loving relationship with God. Uh, we also see throughout Scripture that God is pursuing a relationship with humanity. He's entering a covenant with Israel. He's sending His Son to rescue us from our sins. So human beings are born with this capacity and even a thirst for a relationship with God, and God is pursuing a relationship with humanity. And yet, we also see God never coerces anyone mm -hmm. into relationship with Him. So Adam and Eve obviously reject that relationship, uh, even among Jesus' own disciples. You know, Judas betrays him to death. God never forces anyone into that relationship with him. And so if God doesn't use coercion in, in matters of religious belief and faith, how much less did the government? And when the government does that, when it inserts its coercive power into the relationship between God and man, it is exceeding its God-given realm of authority and committing an injustice. So that is the sense in which religious freedom is much more than a political or cultural war issue. It's a basic issue of biblical justice. And and all the more reason that it's um, so troubling to see, you know, the way it increasingly appears in scare quotes as if it's sort of an invented um, concept. So. Uh, we're we're going to take a quick break, um, but we're talking with Luke Goodrich, author of Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America, and an attorney with the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences, the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, joined in our D.C. studio today by my colleagues at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer and Ashley McGuire, and from Utah, a special guest, Luke Goodrich from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and author of a brave new book, um, Reasons to Believe. Free Did to I get believe. that right? Free to Believe. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have your book here uh, under a bunch of notes and, and folders and stickies. I'm very sorry. I messed that up. But thank you for joining us to talk about your book, Free to Believe. Thanks so, for having me. 
right before the break, we you were giving us um, what I guess is the 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 the, the the nub, the essence, no, of your book that religious liberty is not just a cultural, a political or cultural construct. It has a scriptural, um, scriptural and theological and philosophical foundations that that ring very true, and that and that have to be understood for for religious liberty to really take root in our hearts. I think is is the way I read it when I was reading your book. And I really liked what you said about how God doesn't coerce relationship with him. He chases us. He wants us. He sends us telegrams and smoke signals. But <laughs> he's, uh, he's waiting for us to correspond. That's right. And if God doesn't use coercion in, in that relationship, how much less should the government? Uh, I think a lot of people uh, aren't receptive to those biblical arguments. You know, if you're not a Christian, you don't really care what the Bible says. So mm-hmm. I also have a chapter in Free to Believe on purely secular and philosophical arguments that we can make in the public square for persuading people about the importance of religious freedom. Uh, and one of those is how religious freedom benefits society. A second is how it protects our other rights. And a third is how it's a, a fundamental human right rooted in our nature as human beings. Luke, this is Andrea. I really appreciate um, the importance of getting the language right and knowing the audience that we're speaking to. And and although we work uh, at the Catholic Association, really um, oftentimes in with c- people who have common beliefs and they expect uh, a certain language, we also have friends and relatives who don't share that same um, vocabulary. And so it's, it, it was very helpful to understand. Um, how to frame our conversations with our friends, how to explain that religious freedom is something that they should also get behind, even people who aren't religious or people who are of different faith traditions. And I found a lot of your um, explanations very convincing. Uh, One in particular, though, was something that I struggle with all the time, which is Oftentimes, people are equating some of the challenges where religious conscience objections, religious-based conscience objections, they're drawing parallels to racial discrimination. Um, The reason why there shouldn't be a religious-based exemption to an opposition for same-sex marriage, for example, is just like why there shouldn't be exemptions to public accommodations uh, in, in racial uh, settings. So I was wondering if you could give a little overview on the difference between what was an important civil rights um, kind of achievement in addressing racial discrimination and why some of our current uh, challenges, especially around same-sex relationships, are different. Yeah, that's such a huge issue because so many uh, opponents of religious freedom are, are making that precise argument, trying to compare traditional Christian beliefs about marriage to racist beliefs that supported segregation. And so they say, just like a restaurant shouldn't be allowed to turn away an interracial couple, well, a photographer or florist shouldn't be allowed to turn away a same-sex couple. And I, I address in detail that analogy to race in the book showing why race is actually treated differently and uniquely in our law. Uh, Number one, our country has a uniquely tragic history of race Mm -hmm. discrimination. We had over 300 years of slavery based on race, fought a civil war based on race, and had government-imposed segregation based on race. That resulted in systematic and pervasive barriers for African Americans 
to full participation in the economic, social, and political life of the community. And because of that, the government was given special and powerful tools to eradicate race discrimination, uh, tools that it wasn't given for any other form of discrimination, whether based on sex, religion, age, marital status, or anything else. And so that difference is reflected throughout our laws. Uh, All 50 states, for example, ban race discrimination in employment, and there are no religious exemptions. Uh, But by contrast, only 22 states ban employment discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, and all 22 of those states have religious exemptions. Mm -hmm. This just reflects the, the fundamental difference between race and sexual orientation, and even the Supreme Court, I mean, maybe the most prominent example, when the Supreme Court struck down interracial marriage bans in Loving versus Virginia, it condemned the beliefs underlying those bans as invidious relics of white supremacy. Uh, By contrast, when the Supreme Court uh, struck down traditional marriage laws in Obergefell, it went out of its way to do the opposite and said, traditional marriage laws are based on decent and honorable religious and philosophical premises that have long been held by people in good faith and are worthy of protection. So even the Supreme Court as well has recognized that that analogy between race and sexual orientation simply doesn't work. Um, Luke, I think it's, you know, no secret to anybody who's following these issues that this really does feel like the sort of religious liberty sort of question of our time is how do we navigate the post-Obergefell waters? Um, and you sort of play spell out in your book a, a couple of options. Option one is we sort of have this cultural revival where we reconvince um, the culture of the true nature of marriage and Um, But you say that's not likely. Uh, The second one is, I believe, um, basically religious liberty exemptions are sort of um, either eradicated or people sort of abandon. You know, you you talk about um, the sort of those on the other side of the religious liberty case for this issue think that what happened with um, the religious arguments for racism, the same thing is going to happen Mm -hmm. uh, with marriage. The people will slowly abandon that. And, you know, I will say, you know, being a millennial, I— I, I do think there's a lot of that that's happening. And mm-hmm. it's been amazing to see the polling shifts. Like when Obergefell came down, I think there was still less than half. It was a very surprisingly low number of Americans supported the concept of same-sex marriage. And now the polling is through the roof. I don't, I can't remember what the last one I saw was. But, you know, this goes to the point about the law is a teacher, that people are ta- told that this is legal and they come to accept it as moral and right. Um, But what do you think is, you know, you write about this in your book, but for our listeners who haven't read it, um, what do you think is the best and most plausible path forward um, for those who want to adhere to their traditional beliefs about marriage um, without, you know, being sort of finding themselves alienated and punished by the government? Yeah, so I I draw an analogy in the book uh, from conscientious objection of the Quakers at the time of of the founding uh, through to uh, Roe versus Wade and the issue of abortion. And shortly after Roe versus Wade, we had laws passed uh, at the federal level and in all 50 states saying that, you know, while women may have a constitutional right to abortion, which means the government can't stop them from getting it, Uh, That doesn't mean they have a right to command the assistance of others in getting an abortion. And so 
doctors, hospitals, nurses uh, with religious conscientious objection to abortion also have the right to step aside. Uh, and I think that same sort of solution works when it comes to gay rights, and you can see it in a variety of contexts. And just one case that I'm working on right now, uh, we're representing Catholic Social Services in the city of Philadelphia. And for over 100 years, Catholic Social Services has had a ministry uh, recruiting families to provide loving homes for foster children. Uh, and they've done a fantastic job. Uh, there are over 20 other agencies in Philadelphia that do the same work, uh, but Catholic, Catholic Social Services uh, has a, in accordance with Catholic Church teaching, doesn't place children in the homes of unmarried couples or of same-sex couples. And because of that, the city of Philadelphia has decided to punish Catholic charities, cut off their ministry, and shut it down, uh, even though there are over 20 other agencies that are placing children right now with same-sex couples. Uh, and so the solution there is not to you know, take government power and crush everybody who falls on the wrong side of government orthodoxy, but instead protect the right of Catholic social services to step aside when it comes to same-sex couples, and they can get that from other uh, other agencies. So that's that's the argument we're making in court, and I think the argument that will prevail over the long run. Luke, um, this is Andrea. Here at the Catholic Association, we're not only incredible groupies at the Beckett Fund, but um, great. Uh, and love the galas. We, we love we, the galas. No, and just love the work that you're doing and admire um, the incredible uh, strength of all of your legal arguments. And we've joined in in the Philadelphia case, um, both at the Court of Appeals and in your petition to the the Supreme Court. And and you're definitely you've you've spotted that, that Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia was targeted. Right, they were targeted by the mayor, by the head of the Department of Human Services. There was a lot of really ugly comments um, here and there, and it, it kind of they showed their cards, they showed their hand. Um, there are other jurisdictions where they're engaging in what Pope Francis often calls polite persecution, where there is a very neutral law and a very neutral application to shut faith-based groups or any kind of opposition to ideological conformity out of the public square and out of partnering. What do we do there when there isn't these big red flags showing animus, when it's just either you buy, you're either with us on recognizing these unions um, or you're not participating in our programs? Yeah, I think one of the most important arguments to make is not invoking solely our right to religious freedom, but also showing persuasively the good that religious organizations are mm -hmm. doing. So if you take social services in Philadelphia, and the city has admitted there's a foster care crisis, and Catholic Social Services is doing the best job of recruiting families to respond to that crisis, and in other jurisdictions, when Catholic Charities has been shut down, shut out of adoption and foster care, there's been a precipitous drop in the number of families available to take care of these children. Uh, so at the end of the day, attacking religious freedom for Catholic charities harms not only their religious freedom, but also the children that they are caring for. And that extends across a wide range of services. I mean, take like school vouchers, for example. There are some jurisdictions trying to cut off school vouchers for religious schools that don't toe the government's line on marriage. Well, we need to show that religious schools, Catholic schools, 
are doing the best job of educating the neediest children. And when you violate their religious freedom, you're not just violating human rights, you're also harming the rest of society. Uh, so it's very important to show across, these, across the range of these issues uh, that religious organizations are needed, and the good that they do is necessary for society. But Luke, what about, let's talk about, uh, if you don't mind, I'm a, I'm a practicing physician, and, and we could talk about medical objections, uh, medical conscience rights, and religious liberty rights for medical personnel. Uh, you know that a federal judge just recently struck down um, the Trump administration's, um, they had they had set up a rule to protect conscience rights, right, for medical professionals who didn't want to perform right. things like abortions and re removing healthy breasts and uteruses from healthy young women. Um, and but when my I you know I spend a lot of time on Twitter and I hear the other side and the other side's arguments is that well there's plenty of doctors there's plenty of hospitals just step don't you don't want to practice the way we practice medicine the way science dictates that we should practice medicine then just go away. And there's not really an institutional argument to be made, right? They just say, fine, then the Catholic hospitals can just stop being Catholic. They can take over, you know, the Baptists can take over whoever the system is that will do it. Or they can just be run by the government, like Elizabeth Warren's new plan, Medicare for All, right? So it's just another socialized healthcare plan where there will be no private spots. There will be no private areas where where doctors, can, doctors, nurses, and hospital systems can operate in a way that's not 100% uh, behind the secular, whatever the secular thing is this year, right? Whatever, is, whatever their craziness is this year. So what do you, how do we defend ourselves from that? If there's no institute, we can't say, oh, well, we need our hospitals. They're like, no, we don't. We'll get other hospitals. Yeah, so there is an interesting argument when it comes to medical care. Often it centers around access to health care. And they say, if you're a religious doctor, hospital, and you won't provide this abortion or this uh, surgery, trans transgender surgery, you're blocking access to health care. Um, but as we've shown in our cases time and again, there are many other providers willing to provide that type of service. And if you force religious doctors and hospitals to violate their conscience, you're actually going to force them out of the profession and undermine access to health care for everybody else. Because in many cases, religious health care providers are the ones providing the most essential services. And uh, one of our cases right now, I think, is a, is a good illustration of this. We're representing Franciscan Alliance, a Catholic uh, hospital network. And at the end of the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services passed a regulation uh, with little, uh, little known at the time but it required doctors and hospitals across the country to perform gender transition procedures, you know, controversial mm -hmm. things like sex change operations or cross-sex hormones. And if they wouldn't perform those procedures, they would be deemed to be discriminating mm -hmm. based on gender identity. Uh, and so this is a very serious threat to Catholic healthcare providers and other religious healthcare providers. And just regular oh, healthcare, sorry, just regular healthcare providers. <laughs> not every, I mean, you don't have to be religious to not want to participate in harming in harming patients. But go ahead, absolutely. sorry. And we, we took that case to court and made precisely that argument. It's not just a religious liberty argument. Uh, even if you're a purely secular healthcare provider, and you want to provide the best, most compassionate care to somebody who's struggling with gender dysphoria, uh, that doesn't mean uh, cutting off healthy organs. Uh, mm -hmm. it, you know, the studies on this show that those types of procedures can be deeply harmful to patients. So we made the argument to the court, you know, you, you respect this as a matter of religious freedom, yes, 
but you also need to respect it as a matter of medical judgment and sound science and medical treatment. And we got a great ruling in favor of Franciscan Alliance. Obviously, the ACLU may try to appeal that, uh, but it's, it's just so important to make the arguments, again, not just from the religious freedom perspective, but from what benefits all of society. Mm-hmm. But just to dovetail on what Gracie was asking, um, it does seem like, you know, you talk in your book a lot about this longstanding sort of legal detente between um, the abortion world and everybody else. And it seems like in the last two years, there's just been this total escalation from the pro-choice side of attempting to conscript every single person they can, whether it's insurance companies, universities, healthcare providers, into providing, dispensing, performing abortions. Why, to what do you attribute that recent change? I think, I think it's just uh, largely driven by a cultural shift where Roe versus Wade is not good enough anymore for, for the pro-abortion side. It's not enough for it to be legal. It has to also be socially acceptable and widely available. And if you're not willing to provide it as a real, religious health care provider, you're blocking access to health care to women, and you're also discriminating against women, and there's an effort to actually punish conscientious objection to abortion. But, I mean, I would say on the flip side of that, we did win the Hobby Lobby case. In mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. We got a great victory for the Little Sisters of the Poor from the Supreme Court. Uh, and so, you know, there's an attack on that detente when it comes to abortion, but we've also seen some really good rulings. So, you know, don't don't give up hope. And, and that's part of my book as well, Free to Believe, is, is to show why we have ample reason for hope in this area as well. Luke, speaking of winning, one of the, the last chapters of your book, which I really thought um, surprised me to hear uh, or read from a lawyer as author, um, was... Is, is entitled Let Go of Winning. And, and it was, um, it clearly shows kind of where your moral f- uh, formation is. It, and you, the argument is we have to really understand much more profoundly and more deeply why we are fighting for religious freedom. It isn't to win a battle. Um, and part of that is to let go of winning. Could you, as we're finishing up, Give us kind of your parting words on why in all of this we can't be wedded to a victory, but instead be pursuing something different. Yeah, so the religious freedom conflicts, they demand action. And when we as Christians think about what sort of action to take, I think our mind immediately goes to how do we win these battles? How do we win these cases in court? Uh, but as a Christian, you know, I want to call fellow Christians back to Scripture and so much of Scripture was written to Christians who were losing and who were suffering and who were facing persecution. Uh, we haven't had that same persecution here in America, uh, but we need to reacquaint ourselves with what Scripture says to the persecuted Church. And first and foremost, our calling in the midst of these conflicts is not to win a culture war or win a case, although I definitely want to win every case. Mm-hmm. Our first calling... <laughs> we want you to as well. <laughs> Our first calling in these conflicts is to be faithful to Jesus, and there's so much that Scripture has to say to that. Uh, And then secondly, we often enter into these conflicts from a posture of fear, uh, and I want to bring us back to a posture of hope. And there there are different sources for hope. I mean, we live in America, we have strong constitutional guarantees of religious freedom, we have a good legal system, 
At Beckett, we have a 90% win rate over the last quarter century, and we're undefeated in the Supreme Court. So even just looking at our practical circumstances, there's a lot of reason for hope. Uh, but I also say we are called to be people of hope whether we live in North America or live in North Africa. And ultimately, as Christians, the source of our hope is not in winning the next election or maintaining a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Our hope is in the risen person of Jesus Christ. And he said in the Gospel of John, in this world, you will have trouble. Mm -hmm. So Jesus was a realist, and we are going to have trouble when it comes to religious freedom. But in the very next breath, he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And so as we enter into these religious freedom conflicts, and it's going to get worse before it gets better in the coming years, I think, we need to remember those words, that we serve a Savior who has overcome the world. Whether we win a case or lose a case, we have a source of hope that is higher than these cases. And that, if my clients have taught me one thing in the midst of these religious freedom battles, is that there are more important things in life than winning cases. And the most important thing is being faithful to Christ mm -hmm. in the midst of these conflicts. So that's where we need to start from Amen. when it comes to religious freedom. Those are perfect words to end by, Luke Goodrich. Thank you so much for joining us on Conversations with Consequences. Where can people buy your book, and where can they read more about Beckett? Yeah, go to LukeGoodrich.com, and my book, Free to Believe, is available wherever books are sold, Amazon, <laughs> Barnes & Noble, uh, and you can find out about Beckett at BeckettLaw.org. Well, thank you, Luke. That was fascinating. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Luke. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry, and do look up his daily homily, written and audio, on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday, when people will ask Jesus about when the end of the world will happen and what the signs will be before it takes place. They asked presumably so that they could be prepared. Jesus didn't answer their question directly, not only because the time of the second coming was known, he said, only to God the Father, but also, and perhaps more importantly, because he wants us to be prepared for it always. If Jesus had given some date, weeks, decades, or centuries later, the temptation would be for us just to go on with life as normal. But Jesus had come to establish a totally new normal, a norm of faith, a norm of vigilant expectation, a full-time Christian behavior. He wanted the day of the Lord to be a perpetual state, so that each day would be a Lord's day, a day in which we could explain, exclaim, this is the day the Lord has made. The signs of the day of the Lord, he gives us, helps to maintain this awareness. We see these signs, in fact, in every age. Jesus describes how the house of God will be attacked, how there will be impostors claiming to be speaking for God and asking us to follow them. How there will be wars, insurrections, earthquakes, famines, plagues, persecutions, hatred, betrayals by family members and friends. And how even some of his disciples will be put to death. But at the same time, Jesus says something seemingly contradictory. 
He assures us that not a head on our hair on our head will be destroyed. He describes God's protection at the same time that he mentions martyrdom. We're not dealing with a contradiction, however, though it's a hard truth all the same, one that we must view with faith. God permits these evils in order to help us become better disciples and better apostles, more fervent followers of him and more passionate proclaimers of his salvation, ultimately so that we might come to eternity with every follicle intact. God permits what we have to endure so that we might become more faithful and bring others to faith. He tells us in the gospel that all of these things will lead to your giving testimony and not just any witness. He tells us that he'll give us the grace of a wisdom in speaking that all of our adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. Such adversities are occasions for witness. Rather than distancing us from the Lord, they impel us to abandon ourselves even more to him. He says at the end of the passage, by your perseverance, you will secure your life. Our salvation will come about not principally by surviving these frightening occurrences he describes, but through growing our Christian character precisely by means of them, through placing our faith, hope, and love in God through all of them. When we're brought to our knees by natural disasters or man-made hatred, it provides the opportunity for us to pray far more devoutly, to grow in faith, and to be proven like gold in a crucible. When we're tested more severely in the faith, God always comes to our aid. He always sends us himself to help us pass those tests, provided that we open ourselves up to his presence during trial and respond to him. And that type of faith is the greatest means to bring others to faith. We've seen since the early days of the church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians. So many have converted when they have seen the way Christians suffer martyrdom with peace, serenity, joy, and even chanting. How they forgive our, their enemies, how they pray for their persecutors, how they freely lay down their lives in love for him who freely laid down his life out of love to save their own. But we also see it on a lesser scale when Christians, having suffered natural disasters like the rest, rush unselfishly to help others before thinking of themselves. How so many, far from the catastrophes, sacrifice in Christ's name as good Samaritans to help people rebuild. Just as Jesus' betrayal, suffering, and martyrdom strengthened his own adhesion to the Father's will, not my will but yours be done, he cried out to the Father three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just as it led to the most powerful testimony of all from the cross of God the Father's merciful and saving will. So when we suffer, it's to enable us to have the greatest possible testimony of faith. It's a chance to show that we Christians live, suffer, and die differently than the rest. Because we know, as St. Paul wrote to the Romans, that neither death nor life, nor persecution or famine or the sword, nor anything in all creation can separate us teaches others that Jesus is worth living for and worth dying for. And that type of witness can't help but move people to faith. One of the reasons why Jesus allows persecutions, natural disasters, betrayals, and other objective evils is because he wants to convert into moral and apostolic goods what we endure. They wake us up and help us no longer take the faith for granted. But we don't have to wait for a persecution or a hurricane or a personal disaster to wake up in faith. Every day is meant to be a day of the Lord. 
Every day, the Lord sends us his Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith so that we might give witness to it by words and deeds. Every day is an opportunity to live differently, to live more like Christ. The more we in our day-to-day -day exams unite ourselves with Christ and his mission, the more we will unite ourselves to him in our work and daily prayer, and the more we will be ready to remain united with him in the supreme hour into the hour that will know no end. God bless you all. Thank you again, Father Landry, for a wonderful homily. You, you, you grace us with uh, your presence on our show every week. And unfortunately, it's time to say goodbye. We had a wonderful show uh, here at the Catholic Association's Conversations with Consequences. We had Luke Goodrich, all the way from Utah, talking to us about his book, Free to Believe. And uh, he has some wonderful insights. What a treat, Gracie and Ashley. Luke is such a like rock star in the legal world. But in addition to that, he's a man of deep faith. And I think the conversation showed how even in his profession, he has that Christian hope that all of us need to carry with us. And I loved what he ended with, uh, the point about letting go of winning, because I'm really type A, <laughs> and I like to win. <laughs> really? But it's true. That is the Christian message, that the fight's already been won. Yep. And so our job is to stay faithful to our consciences and do God's work. He was so right to end on that note. That was wonderful. Well, you've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And today, we I was joined by Ashley McGuire and Andrea picciotti Bayer my colleagues at the Catholic Association. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast of our show wherever you get your podcasts. And you can go to thecatholicassociation.org to subscribe for free. Tell your friends about us, and we will be talking to you next week. <laughs>